that means no government, federal or state, can change it. Uh, that's very important. If something is stammer rights, you know, the government gives you a right, they can take it away. But if something is considered to be in the Constitution, the Havdil is like it's in the Seris Adibros, right? You can't change it. So Roe versus Wade created what is called a constitutional right to privacy and a woman's control over her body. Uh, suffice it to say, the Constitution does not say such a thing, but uh, the Supreme Court kind of inferred it, created it, etc. Uh, so since Roe, now again, forgive me, I'm gonna, I, am, I am gonna talk a little bit about the legal aspect in order to understand the Torah laws about it, right? So even though this is not a law school classroom per se, but I need to talk about the secular law a little bit uh, in order to understand the halachas. Now Roe versus Wade, people don't always recognize this. Even when you had Roe versus Wade, they made a chiluk, they made a difference between the first two trimesters and the last trimester. They basically said for the first six months, for the first two trimesters, a woman has a right to abortion no matter what. Uh, she has that right to make that decision. Nobody can take it away from her. In the last trimester though, where the fetus is already potentially viable because you can have a premature baby after six months and the baby might live, at that point uh, the Supreme Court said a state could take into account various restrictions and, and the like. So even Roe versus Wade did not automatically allow unrestricted late-term abortions, but for six months it would, be, it would be okay. Now, what has happened in the past few months is that the more conservative Supreme Court with three judges appointed by President Trump, who may be coming back in two years or whatever it would be, they simply overruled Roe versus Wade. They said it was a mistake. They said it was wrong. And they basically said there is no such thing as a constitutional right to an abortion. It was a made up thing, no such thing. Now, again, very important. The Supreme Court did not say abortion is forbidden. They simply said there is no constitutional right to abortion. What does that mean? Every individual state can either permit it or not permit it. Okay, this is, again, a very important point because everybody says the Supreme Court uh, was anti-abortion. No, the Supreme Court actually was neutral on abortion because it basically said every state makes their own decision. As a result, what's going to happen in the United States, and it's already happened, is that very liberal states are going to continue to allow unrestricted abortion. So you take a state like New York, in spite of Chabad and Satmer, New York is by and large a liberal state, or California, they're going to allow abortion. Nothing's going to change. Uh, Pre-Roe and after Roe, you know, I mean, uh, Roe versus Wade and post-Roe, it's going to be the same thing. Where you are going to have a big change, and you've already had a big change, is what you might call more conservative states, more Christian states, you know, more religious Christian states, etc., now they can pass laws, and some have already passed laws, that will prosecute abortion, forbid abortion, criminalize abortion, etc. Usually it doesn't mean the woman will go to jail, that's not gonna happen, but the one who may get in bigger trouble is gonna be the doctor, etc. Uh, okay, right, so that's where the state of the United States is right now. <coughs> in other words, uh, abortion is up for grabs. Uh, 50 different states could come up with 50 different types of approaches. 
ranging from total prohibition to total permission to every type of thing that's going to be in the middle. It is up for grabs. Um, okay, so that's uh, what you need to know about the American law. Now, in other countries, including Israel, abortion is very liberal. Uh, abortion in this country uh, is absolutely, from a secular perspective, is absolutely permitted. And uh, to our great pain, uh, the state of Israel has the, uh, one of the highest rates of abortion in the world. And most of those abortions are Jewish abortions. They are not uh, non-Jewish abortions. The, the Arabs are machmer on abortion. It's the, it's the uh, Jews who are not uh, halakhically observant that uh, are into abortion. And that's a very, very great uh, tragedy in many, many ways. Um, people have, some people have compared it. Again, I know this gets people upset, but the comparison has been made that essentially um, abortion has been a, a, silent, a virtual silent holocaust because if you measure over many, many years the number of kids who were not born and then the children they would have had and the grandchildren they would have had, and of course that's just gonna get a bigger number as you go through, you are dealing with millions and millions of, of Yiddish and Nishamas uh, that could have, been, uh, could have been born. So uh, we consider abortion to be a great, great tragedy. So now uh, that you now that you can, and of course in the rest in European countries, Bichlau, they're very, very liberal. Uh, uh, so uh, abortion is, uh, you know, a common, a very, very common practice in Europe. It's more common than Israel, more common than the United States. And that's despite the fact that a number of European countries are very strongly Catholic, like France, Italy. Italy, of course, is where the Pope is. Uh, Germany, uh, these are Catholic countries, but so what? Uh, Historically, they're Catholic countries, but uh, most, most of the citizens are not uh, religious in particular, so the, uh, even the Catholic Church's pronouncements against abortion are routinely ignored. Okay, so I apologize for, for talking about uh, the law a little bit, um, but again, I do. before I leave the law, I just want to make one other point, which I'm going to bring up again, and that is uh, sometimes when I talk about this or other people talk about this, people say, oh, you're cruel, you don't think about uh, the single mother, you don't think about uh, all that uh, a woman is going through and you, know, you just impose these burdens. So I, I do want to add that anyone that does take a strong anti-abortion position, which Judaism essentially does take, has to couple it with compassion and, and uh, offering resources and help to people. You can't just tell a woman, have a child, and then let her fend for herself without helping her out. So obviously there's a total picture here. The picture is that we don't kill fetuses, we don't kill babies. That's the idea. But at the same time, we have to be sure that mothers and children get all of the help that they need, whether it's adoption placement or whether it's economic, medical, psychological resources, to keep a baby. In other words, you can't have the position that, oh, I'm really against abortion, but I don't think you know, single mothers ought to be helped. That, that's uh, unconscionable. Uh, that's not a moral stance at all. But people make a joke about certain anti-abortion advocates who don't want to help uh, women. They say they believe life begins at conception but ends at birth, meaning to say they're so worried about the unborn baby, once the kid is born, they don't want to do, you know, they don't want to do anything. And that's perverse, obviously, in Judaism. There's tzedakah, there's chesed, there's the idea of taking care of people who can't afford themselves. So when you look at the total picture, this is not a cruel system at all. 
This is a system that has compassion for the baby, compassion for the mother, and tries to make things work out. I mean, listen, nobody would say, unless you're literally, uh, you know, psychotic, that I could kill a baby because it's an unwanted child. I mean, you have the baby's already born. I mean, nobody's going to say, oh, I killed my three-year-old because it was too much stress. Nobody's going to say, well, there are, actually are people who say that, but they would, they're crazy. I mean, nobody's going to say that. So to say that abortion is justified because of the stresses, you know, if you regard it as essentially killing a baby, you just can't go there. You have to find another way out of this. You see? So I hope that, you know, you, know, you don't look at this as, oh, halacha is cruel, halacha is mean, halacha is not considering the, 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 the struggles that a single mother has. It does consider that, but you also have a life in the mother's womb that she's carrying that you cannot terminate. So this is an important idea that uh, all of the restrictions on abortion have to be coupled with tzedakah and chesed and resources that can help, a, assuming she's a single woman or a married woman, whatever the scenario is, be able to either take care of the child or give the child a good home, whatever the choices would, would be. Uh, let me just call uh, your attention. Again, I, I hope that none of you ever, ever, ever will be involved in this type of decision, but just be aware of it. Maybe you have friends that could use the information. There are two organizations that are involved in both kind of discouraging abortion, but at the same time providing resources, including medical, psychological, emotional, uh, and the like. Uh, one is in the United States, and they both have websites, you can check them out. It's called In Shifra's Arms, uh, which is a very, very good organization, uh, and that's in, uh, located in, in the United States. Uh, the second is a larger organization, it's been around much longer, and it's here in Eretz Israel, and it is called Efrat, not to be confused with the city of the same name, but it's called Efrat, and uh, there too, Efrat has Sometimes you might see, sometimes they have an advertisement around Ben Yehuda Street. I don't know if you've ever seen it, uh, whatever it's, it's, uh, it's, it's an advertisement for that, uh, for that organization. Uh, Farad is actually thinking about expanding in the United States as, as well. I know in Schiffer's arms is negotiating with Farad about a merger and, and the like. But these are important organizations because uh, they will not just help a woman not get an abortion, but will help her with everything else uh, that is needed. Uh, therefore, it's important to have those types of, of organizations there. It's really a chesed uh, for everybody. Okay, all righty, so now that I, I did kind of the commercial, uh, so let's um, talk a little bit more about the halachas of abortion. Again, some of this we, we did start last week, but I'm you know, also add some new things. Uh, first, uh, it's important to remember, basic point, that uh, killing a fetus, again, I'm not even saying killing a person, you'll notice, but killing a fetus, I think everyone can say an abortion is killing a fetus, if nothing else. Uh, killing a fetus is a prohibition, not only under the Torah law that applies to Jewish people, but it's even a prohibition under the seven commandments of Noah that are binding to non-Jewish people. You see, if something would only be binding on Jewish people, that means non-Jews are allowed to do it. Meaning, I don't care if a non-Jew violates Shabbos. It's not violation. I don't care if a non-Jew eats treif. A non-Jew is allowed to eat treif. A non-Jew is allowed to do work on Shabbos. I'm not allowed to tell him to do work on Shabbos. That's true. But that's my problem. 
A non-Jew commits no sin by working on Shabbos. So I'm not interested in passing a law that you're not allowed to work on Shabbos. Non-Jews are allowed to do that. But you see, abortion is a little different because termination of pregnancy is not only an Avera for a Jew, but it's also an Avera for a non-Jew. Now, you may say, but so what? Do I have to care about non-Jews? Well, the answer is yes. The Rambam writes that although Jewish people do not proselytize, we don't try to make other people Jewish. Right? I don't go out to non-Jews and say, why don't you look into Judaism and the like. In fact, the other way around. If a non-Jew wants to convert to Judaism, we initially try to discourage them. If they persevere, we'll then welcome them, but initially, you know, we try to push them off. You know, ah, you can miss cheeseburger, it's so good, whatever it would be. But there is one type of proselytization that we do, that we are supposed to encourage non-Jewish people to live, not by the Torah, but by the seven commandments of Noah. I think I mentioned last week that indeed one of the Rebbe's Mitzayim, one of the Rebbe's projects, was a project to the non-Jewish world, uh, not to become Jewish, or certainly not to become Chabad, that's for sure, but to keep the seven Noahide laws. In fact, the Rebbe won a uh, congressional, he didn't, he didn't come to the ceremony, but Rabbi Shemtov in, in Washington was there. The Rebbe won a medal from the U.S. Congress for his efforts in promoting morality in general society, which referred specifically to the seven commandments of Noah, you know, not murdering, not stealing. Now, these are basic moral values, and uh, the Congress of the United States recognized that as something very laudable. By the way, there are conspiracy theorists who look at this as very sinister. They actually say, oh, Chabad is trying to take over the United States with the Noahide laws. You know, they, they make a whole mysterious thing about the Noahide laws you know, are going to kind of take over the world. Okay, it's another anti-Semitic uh, thing. But okay, so this is very important. So, so abortion is usher not only for Jews. Abortion is usher for non-Jews as well. In fact, the punishment... We don't, we don't give these punishments today, but the punishment for abortion uh, performed by a non-Jew is stricter than the punishment for abortion performed by a Jew. If a non-Jew performs an abortion, when I say performs, I mean the doctor, I don't mean the mother. If, if a non-Jewish doctor performs an abortion, he is chayav misa. Chayav misa means, again, we don't administer the death penalty today, but it's like murder mamash he could get the death penalty for killing a fetus because that is treated as murder mamish. Masha'ein came if a Jewish person performs an abortion, even though it is asur, it is not a capital punishment crime. Okay, so in, in a way, the non-Jew who does the abortion is a bigger sin than the Jew that does the abortion, because the guy is chay of Misa, and the Jew is not chay of Misa, and, and the like. And the proof that the Jew is not chay of Misa is from Sefer Shmos and Parshas Mishpatim, when the Torah talks about two guys who are fighting and a pregnant woman tries to <coughs> stop them, and she gets, she gets punched in her belly, and she miscarriages, the fetus is killed, 
So the Torah says in such a situation that we only impose financial liability on the fighter. We do not impose capital punishment, which implies that the killing of a baby, not a baby, I'm sorry, the killing of a fetus is a financial sin rather than a capital crime. Right, so that's the... You said the, the punishment is more severe on the doctor than the lady? Yes, the lady herself doesn't get punished because she didn't do anything, meaning the only sin, in other words, what's the sin, let's analyze it, what's the sin of a woman getting an abortion? So actually the sin of a woman getting an abortion is she's causing the doctor to sin. So the perpetrator of the abortion is actually the doctor, not the, not the woman. Uh, the woman is over on Lifneibra, as if I would give you something treif, so I don't cause a person to sin, right? Now, this raises a very, very interesting question. Let me just uh, raise this question again. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want the police to arrest me. I mean, I'm just throwing it out as a question to think about a very interesting point, and that is, uh, right, there are abortion doctors in the United States. There certainly were before Roe versus Wade was repealed, and even now. In some states, there are abortion doctors. Uh, there are fundamentalist Christians who are very, very, very anti-abortion. And uh, what they do sometimes is they wait in a parking lot of a hospital. And when the abortion doctor shows up at the hospital to do his abortions, they basically kill him. They kill him. Abortion doctors have been killed uh, by anti uh, by uh, anti-abortion activists called pro-lifer. A pro-life kills the doctor and the like. Now, generally speaking, uh, these uh, people have been arrested, they've been tried for murder, and they've been sentenced to prison. So if you're asking me legally, can, I, can you kill an abortion doctor? The answer is, of course you cannot. Okay, that's for sure. If you're caught, you'll go to jail. If it's a state with capital punishment, you can get the electric chair, whatever it is. But I'm not asking legally. I'm asking halakhically. Could I kill... Again, I, I would not do it, please rest assured. Am I halakhically allowed to kill a doctor who is about to perform an abortion? Now, let, let's analyze this. Normally, of course, there's an issue in the Torah to kill anybody, right? Jew or non-Jew, right? That's for sure. But there's one major exception. There is a time in which you are allowed and even commanded to kill somebody. And that is if that person is a rodef. Now, what is a rodef? A rodef is a pursuer. An example would be if somebody is, going, is trying to kill somebody else. Well, either one. If someone's trying to kill me, I'm allowed to kill them. And if somebody's trying to kill somebody else, I'm allowed to kill them. Right? So a rodef is the pursuer. The nirdaf is the one being pursued. So the nirdaf is allowed to kill the rodef. And a third party is allowed to kill the rodef. Right? This is the famous statement. If somebody is coming to kill you, you are allowed to kill them first. Right? That's the law of Rodef. Now, this is why we're allowed to kill a terrorist 
who is about to commit a terrorist act. Why am I allowed to kill him? Because he's a rodef. Now again, be sure you understand that the heter of killing a rodef is to prevent the loss of life. Meaning, once a terrorist has blown up a bus, and let's assume he survived, I can't kill him now. Now he can be arrested, he can be tried by a court or a basin, and they could sentence him to death or whatever it is. But I, as a private person, I can't kill a terrorist after he's done his act. You understand this? Because Rodaif is not about punishing bad people. Rodaif is about prevention of harm. Right? That's Rodaif. That's why it's a double pressure according to Halacha. Once a terrorist has been subdued, once a terrorist has been disabled, you're not allowed to kill him. Until he's disabled, and he could still shoot, I could kill him. But even then, even then, this is only true if a lesser way would not be effective or may not be effective. Meaning if you could tackle him, if you could break his leg, if you could shoot him in his arm, you're obligated to do that before you kill him. Right? You can't kill him if you could disable him in another way. And, of course, once he's disabled, you for sure cannot kill him. Remember that this was a famous case here in Israel a few years ago? It was on YouTube where a terrorist was subdued. He was lying on the ground. And a soldier walked by, this was Mama Shan video, took his gun and just shot the guy in the head. The guy was, was killed. So the soldier was arrested by the army. The soldier was court-martialed by the army for murder because this was a terrorist who was already no longer a danger. He was no longer gonna kill anybody. Now, his argument was, you know, who knows? His argument was that the terrorist was reaching for a gun, actually, so, so who knows? Yeah, maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong. But in principle, it is true that if the terrorist is no longer a danger, I cannot kill him until he goes to a court and is properly, properly punished. A proper, I'm sorry, properly sentenced, and then he could be punished. Right, so that's the law of Rode. Right? Yeah. With this law, is it that you're permitted to kill them or obligated? Um, you're actually obligated. Uh, the Rambam counts it as a mitzvah, a mitzvah to kill a Rodef. But again, it's a little tricky because a Rodef has to be, uh, that you cannot disable him in any other way. And by the way, in terms of Rodef, you know, it's perception rather than reality that makes the difference. Um, I remember when I was in law school, I remember this, it's still, still kind of scary, the guy was an idiot. Um, I was walking in uh, Brookline, Massachusetts at night, and all of a sudden, some guy goes over to me, and he pulls out a gun, he sticks it at me, and uh, he says, you know, you, whatever it is, I'm gonna kill you, whatever it is. And it turned out it was a fake gun, it was a toy gun, and then he starts laughing. Great joke, you know. Now, the truth is, the joke could theoretically be on him, because let's imagine I had a gun, and I thought somebody was threatening me with a real gun, and I killed him, and it turned out it was a fake gun, both legally and halakhically. 
I did the right thing because I had a reasonable belief that my life was being threatened. So people who play jokes like that, I mean, it's a stupid joke anyway, but people who play jokes like that might find themselves dead uh, because if someone else has a real gun, they have the right to shoot under those circumstances. So I'm sure none of you ever played a joke like that, but uh, don't, don't uh, do that. Uh, don't pull out fake guns and, uh, and, and the like. Okay. Alrighty, so here's my question. Right, so all of this is clear. This is not even a Shiloh. But the question is this. Um, if I'm allowed to kill somebody who's about to kill another person, am I allowed to kill an abortion doctor who's about to do an abortion? Right? Do I consider him a Rodev? Because if I consider him a Rodev, then if I kill him, I've done nothing wrong. In fact, not only have I done nothing wrong, I've done a mitzvah. So the question is, maybe these crazy Christians are right, meaning they, they're allowed to kill an abortion doctor because the abortion doctors are right. Now, even if you say that, that doesn't mean they can kill them at home. That means they can kill them right before they do an abortion. In other words, you can't kill a Rodef, you know, uh, two days before he's doing his thing, but only when he's involved in the murderous activity. So this is a very good question, uh, but I think Lemaisa, uh, we would not apply the law of Rodef because, as we will see, even though abortion is sinful, uh, a fetus is not called a complete human being yet, meaning to say there is still a notion that until the fetus is born, uh, he's not a complete person, even though there's a law against abortion, meaning we don't agree with the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church says... Uh, you're a full-fledged human life as soon as there is conception. We say you're a potential life that we have to respect, but it's not yet a full-fledged life. So the law of Rodef, I don't think, would apply, but it is an interesting question uh, to, uh, to consider. Also, like you, they wouldn't know like what kind of abortion the doctor was giving, like whether or not it was something that was life-saving to the mother. Yep, that, that's a very good point. Or if it was just an exam, not even you're right. You're, you're right. How do they know? That, that, those are all. Like it seems like a trial. Like it would right. need a trial. Those are really good points. So what? What if? Uh, okay, but what if you know, uh, you get yourself in the operating room as, as the uh, fake anesthesiologist, right? <laughs> they see exactly what's going on. It says, oh, is this an elective abortion? You know, okay. You know, then you take out the gun and, and shoot. You know. <laughs> By the way, things like that happen too. Uh, you know, people sometimes infil infiltrate. Uh, whatever. Okay. Everything that everything that can happen has happened or will happen or, 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 or whatever, whatever it will be. Okay, so I think last week we began listing any types of exceptions to the rule. What are the exceptions? What are the heterim? So I'll go over some things quickly, then we'll, we'll do some new stuff. Uh, number one, uh, abortion less than 40 days from conception. Uh, this is based on a statement in the Talmud that the embryo... Remember, early stage is called embryo. Fetus is when it's more developed. The embryo is so underdeveloped within 40 days that halakhically it is classified as mere water, mayim bi'alma. So there are rabbis, not everybody, not everybody, there are rabbis who will permit a very early term abortions way before the first trimester, within 40 days of conception. That's very, very early. Uh, commonly, a woman might not even know she's pregnant uh, that early, 
but practically what, what that would allow is that would allow what is called the morning after pill. The morning after pill is not birth control. The morning after pill is actually a very early abortion because uh, it, it, it displaces a fertilized egg from implantation on the uterine wall and uh, therefore, in case there was a pregnancy, usually it's taken when the woman doesn't know, but in case there was. So halacha, if you follow, if, if you follow, not everybody does follow, but if you follow the 40-day rule, uh, the morning after pill would be permitted. That's exception number one. Uh, exception number two is pikuach nefesh of the mother, that either the pregnancy or the birth has a risk to the mother's life that she might die. It doesn't mean she will die. She might die. And uh, if there's a significant risk, significant does not mean 50%, it might just mean 10%. Uh, under those circumstances, uh, abortion would be permitted. And this is at any level before birth, meaning even in the ninth month, ninth month mamish, abortion is permitted until the birth process has begun, has begun. Now, that, that raises a very important question. Uh, what is the birth process? Because that's very important. Because once there's a birth process, then you cannot kill the baby to save the mother because the baby is equal to the mother. So the birth process generally means that the head has emerged up to the forehead or if it's a breech birth, meaning feet first, a majority of the, of, of the height, of the length, let's say, the length of the baby has come out. So it's either the crowning, the top of the head up to the forehead, or a majority of the length of the baby. Now, what this means is that there is a procedure uh, in abortion called partial birth abortion. Maybe you heard of this very controversial, and partial birth abortion, we would call infanticide. That's exactly this case, where the head has come out, but the body hasn't come out yet, and there are circumstances where secular law allows partial birth abortion, but I would just say, we don't even, halakhically, we don't even call that abortion, we call that murder of a child because uh, halakhically that child is born, okay? So one has to be careful with that. But this is pikuach nefesh of the mother. Uh, now what's interesting is, can mother make a choice here? And let's, just, let's say for example the following. First of all, you have to understand that pikuach nefesh doesn't only mean that the pregnancy or the birth itself is life-threatening. It could be that it may aggravate a pre-existing medical condition. Let's imagine that the woman has a weak heart or the woman has a dialysis failure, has kidney failure, uh, or the woman has cancer. And the trauma of pregnancy and birth could aggravate her medical condition and kill her. That's also called pikuach nefesh, even though it's not exclusively from the pregnancy. But if coupled with her pre-existing medical conditions, it could cause her to die. That's called pikuach nefesh. So here's the question. Can a woman decide that she would rather die and have a child 
than live and not have a child. One could imagine that a mother might decide, I would rather have a ch- leave a child to my husband than to live without with a child dying. Especially, now listen, especially, with, I'll give you a real sad case, especially if her own survival is short-term anyway. Let's imagine she already has incurable cancer. So the doctor says, uh, even if we abort, you're only going to live six months. But if we don't abort, you're going to die now. You're going to die in a week. So think about this. Again, this is a tragic, sad scenario. Look at the cheshman here. The woman says... If I abort, I gain six months of life, and then I'm going to die. If I don't abort, I lose those six months, but I bring a child into the world who could live 120 years. So, interestingly, Halacha actually says that she can decide to abort even for six months of life. Halacha does permit her to say, I want to live for six months. So if you're asking me, can she have an abortion? The answer is yes. But I'm asking the opposite question. Can she decide, I would rather possibly die in childbirth. I mean, maybe she won't, by the way. She could do anything. But let's say the doctors say there's a 95% chance you're going to die in childbirth. Can she decide, I would rather die in childbirth and give birth to a live child <coughs> than to abort and, and, and uh, lose the child and then I'm going to die anyway in a few months. So halacha does permit her to make her choice. She can make the choice to die so that her child could live. Again, it's a very tragic choice. So now let me make it a more difficult question. So we're going through different possibilities. Can her husband make that choice? Let's imagine this. Let's imagine, again, these are such sad cases. Let's imagine a woman has incurable cancer. They can't do anything. And once again, the doctors say that uh, if we abort, she'll live another six months. If we don't abort, she'll die at, uh, you know, in the next month giving birth. But she happens to be unconscious. She, has, she happens to be in a coma. And she's made no decision. We don't know what she wants. And now her husband has to make the decision. Now, if the husband decides to abort to save his wife, absolutely, halakhically, he can make that decision. That's not the question. Because the halakha is there's a right to abortion if, she, if her life is going to be shortened. But the question is, could the husband decide that he'd rather have his wife die to have a child? It's one thing to say she could make that decision. It's another thing to say, could he make that decision? It's a real problem. Now, it would seem that he'd be allowed to make that decision only if he's sure that that is the decision she would have wanted. Meaning, the question is not what the husband wants. The question is, what would the wife want, right? Had she been 
able to make the decision. Now, that's a very hard thing. I mean, the rabbi's not gonna know that. So in some, some issues, the issue is gonna be a matter of trust, uh, that the husband will be honest to himself and make those decisions. Okay, so this is, so pikuach nefesh is a very, very tricky idea uh, because uh, the choice can be made in both directions. Sometimes we say mother's life has priority, but at the same time we also say that she could volunteer to die in order to give birth to a child. Now, Let's go back to the basic principle, though. And that is, however you define it, pikuach nefesh allows us to terminate a pregnancy even in the ninth month until there's a birth process. Right? That's the given. And we know this. This is definitive because this is a mishnah in Maseches Oalos. So there's no question about this. But the question is, why is that so? Why does Halacha say mother's life has preference unless she volunteers, but mother's life has preference over baby's life? Don't we have a rule that you don't kill one person to save another person? Right, the famous example. In fact, even with numbers, uh, you say this. A hostile Geisha army surrounds a city. And they say, give us a Jew that we can kill. Or if you don't give us a Jew that we will kill, we will wipe out the whole city. The whole city. The halacha is, we are not allowed to deliver <coughs> one person, even to save everybody. Because we cannot kill, unless it's a rodef, we cannot kill or cause to be killed one person to save other people, even if there are many. In Kalvachomer, you can't kill one person to save another person. Unless it's a rodef. If it's a rodef, that's different. So, if I go over to you and I say, kill her, that person, or I'll kill you, you can kill me, because I'm a rodef, but you can't kill them. And the reason is, who says your blood? Now, for some reason, the English always mistranslates this. The, the, the English translation always says, who says your blood is sweeter than their blood? That's how the English always translates it. I don't know why they translate it that way. Uh, the Aramaic is sumka, sumka is red. Who says your blood is redder than the other person? It's not sweetness of blood, it's redness of blood. But, but either way, it's an expression. And it means, who says your life is any better than their life? So what we get? So I could I could desecrate Shabbos to save my life, because my life is more important than Shabbos. That's what pikuach nefesh means. In God's value, my life is more important than Shabbos. My life, or your life, is more important than Kashrus. But how can you say my life is more important than your life? Who says? You understand the logic here. So Hashem says you can violate almost the whole Torah to save a life, but you can't murder to save a life. Because who says you're accomplishing anything by that? Now the Kiddush is that we apply that not only if it's a one-to-one, -one, but we even apply it to a one-to-a-thousand. 
And you, in other words, I can't kill one person to save a thousand people. Now there, it's a good kasha. Why don't you say a thousand are better than one? The answer is you don't even know that. You don't even know that. Maybe this one person is more than a thousand people. Now, we can ask, maybe later we'll talk more about this because this is really a peripheral point here, but you might say, well, what if I know my life is better than his? What if, for example, you have a choice? You have a great Rebbe, a great Sadiq, the Godel Hador, and the other guy is a drug addict and a bum. And the guy says to me, kill the drug addict or I'll kill the Godel Hador. Are you allowed to kill the drug addict to save the Godel Hador? No. Because who says the Godel Hador's life is better? What do you mean? I'm pretty, sure, I'm pretty sure it's better. I am pretty sure it's better. The answer is, you know, there are certain decisions Hashem does not authorize us to make. As strange as it is, it is strange, it is strange. But as strange as it is, we can't even murder like the worst bum in the world to save the greatest person in the world. So, back to abortion. So if it's true, you cannot kill one person to save another person, then why do we allow, at least allow, killing the baby, the fetus, to save the mother? <coughs> we should do nothing. Let the baby be born and let the mother die. Why do I say the mother's life beats out the baby's life? Aren't you killing one person to save the other person? So, there's a machlokas, Rashi and the Rambam, as to what is the heter. Nobody questions the heter. The heter exists for sure. But there's a machlokas, what is the heter? Rashi says the heter is because the fetus, this goes back to what I alluded to a little earlier, the fetus is not a complete person yet. Because even though we're not allowed to terminate it, it does not have the full-fledged status of a human being until it's born. So even if it's true that you can't kill an actual person in order to save another actual person, but you can terminate a potential to save the actual, and that is why the fetus has priority over the mother. And that's only until birth, right? Because once there's a birth process, then it becomes person versus person, and you can't do it. That is Rashi's explanation. Meaning, uh, in Rashi's language, the fetus is not a nefesh gamor, is not a complete life. That is Rashi. Rambam gives a totally different explanation. And this is going to be very, very startling, very striking. The Rambam says, the reason why you kill the fetus in order to save the mother is because the fetus is a rodef. Because it is the fetus that is endangering the mother's life. The fetus is like a terrorist trying to kill the mother. And therefore, the rule that you don't kill one person to save another never applies when you're killing a rodent. Now, 
this is a real chiddush. Chiddush meaning a new idea in the following way. When we think of Rodef, we tend to think of bad actors, malevolent people, evil people. We think of terrorists. We think of criminals. We think of people brandishing guns to kill. We don't think of unborn babies as Rodef. So what the Rambam is teaching us is the following. Rodef does not depend on bad intention. Rodef does not depend on evil purpose. Rodef depends on the factual predicate that someone is endangering my life. And even if that someone is an unborn baby, if they are putting my life in danger, halachically they are a rodef and they may be killed. So, so you see the difference here between Rashi's approach and the Rambam's approach. Now, I'll give you an example where the Rambam's approach would also apply. Let's imagine that uh, somebody is a soldier or a policeman and they keep a pistol, they keep a gun in their house or even private citizens. In Israel, a lot of private people have guns. America too. And foolishly, you, you kept your gun and it was loaded. Now that's, that's absolutely against standard procedure when uh, everyone standard procedure is that when you put your gun in a drawer or something, you unload it. But let's assume you put a loaded gun. And in the middle of your Shabbos meal, I'm sorry we're coming up with all these awful cases today, your two-year-old comes up with this new toy that he found, which is a loaded gun, and he's just waving it around a table, and you have a room full of people. Full of people. Any second the gun can go off and kill. Well, obviously, if you can get the gun away from the child in any other way, you do that. But according to Halacha, that two-year-old is a rodef. And if somebody had a gun, they'd be able to shoot, uh, shoot the baby. Now again, this is an example of a rodef who doesn't have bad intention the Rodef does not have any evil intent. But Bimitsias, factually, they are endangering. Let me give you a third example. You're going to hate me after all of these examples of shooting children. This is based on an actual story during the Holocaust. Of uh, ten Jews were hiding in a bunker in a, in a, well, during Nazi Germany, whether it was Germany or Poland, makes no difference. And the Nazis were searching for the Jews. And if the Nazis found the Jews, they would kill all of them. And one of the people in the bunker is a mother with a baby. And the baby starts crying. And the sounds of the cries could be heard in the bunker. And if the Germans hear the baby crying, they'll find the 10 Jews and kill them all, including the baby. So the story goes, the story itself is bad enough, I'm going to make it worse, but the story goes that the mother put a blanket over the baby's mouth with the intention of just keeping the baby quiet. And what happened was, tragically, the baby suffocated. And the baby died. So this was a tragic, accidental death. 
I don't know what even happened to the rest of the people where they found by the Germans. But now I want to take an awful story and make it more awful. In the story I told you, the death of the baby was accidental. But halachically, it may be possible that they would be allowed to suffocate the baby deliberately. Again, God forbid we should ever face that. And the reason is, the baby's cries are endangering the lives of 10 people. According to the Rambam's formulation, that the law of Rodef applies even when there's no malevolent intention, that baby could be classified as a Rodef. And as a Rodef, we are allowed to kill the Rodef in order to save other people. Awful, awful stories, but again, to mitigate it a little bit, let me point out that if the baby is not silenced, what's gonna happen is everyone's gonna get killed, including the baby. So that makes it maybe not so bad in that sense because unfortunately the baby would die along with the group, although that's not necessary for the halachic determination. In all sorts of scenarios, once you start talking about road death, a million different things occur. Let's imagine the Titanic, right? The, the Titanic hits uh, an iceberg and uh, people jump on lifeboats and the lifeboat can only hold 10 people, meaning if there's an, uh, one more person, it's gonna break and everyone's gonna drown. So an 11th guy jumps on the boat. The halacha is, we are allowed to push him off. He's endangering everybody else. Where it gets complicated is, where you don't know who number 11 is. You just have a situation where there's 11 people on a boat. So I look at you and I say, get off, you're endangering the boat. <laughs> you're a rodef. Well, you can, look, you can look at me and say, why am I a rodef? Maybe you're there. By the way, it doesn't depend on, on weight here because our assumption is that the first 10 people, no matter what their weight is, are, are within the limit. Meaning to say, if you're one of the first 10, you have a right to be on the boat. If you're number 11, you don't have a right to be on the boat. But if we don't know who is number 10 or who is number 11, so nobody can do anything, then everybody drowns. I mean, that, that's the truth. Unless you volunteer, you might be able to volunteer to jump, like Yonah. Remember in the book of Yonah, Yonah volunteered, he said, I'm guilty, throw me over. It's an interesting question. Uh, but uh, if Yonah, but, but, you know, Yonah would have, would have had the right to say, hey, you can't kill me to save you, who says I'm the Rodef, you know, et cetera. So that's a whole issue of lifeboats. And if you don't know who the 11th person is, you can't automatically push anybody over. Okay? So this is a big machlokas, Rashi, and the Rambam with respect to why the mother's life has, has precedence. Okay. So uh, now, uh, let's uh, talk about another aspect of Pikuach Nefesh. I think I may have mentioned it last week. And that's the notion of psychological trauma as a life-threatening uh, situation. Uh, and that is sometimes uh, the reason why the pregnancy and the uh, birth endanger the woman's life is not because of a medical condition, but because of a psychiatric condition. Is that number three? Say that? Is that number three? Uh, yeah, number three, I think so, yeah. Yeah, the first is 40 days. Well, I, I don't know, you can classify it as a subcategory of number two. Uh, number two is mother's life is in danger, so we're including 
now psychological stress. Um, a classic example might be uh, conception due to rape or incest. Now, sometimes a pro-life person will say, I am against abortion unless it's rape or incest. Halacha does not have a rape or incest exception. Meaning, we're not going to just say, oh, just because the baby was conceived by rape or incest, you can kill the fetus. No. There's no automatic rape or incest exception. But, in many cases, the trauma might be so great that to force a woman to carry a baby that was conceived by rape or incest may literally be a life-threatening event. So it's not the rape or the incest that would justify the abortion. It would be the pikuach nefesh circumstance. Now, that does mean, therefore, by definition, that that will be uh, different from person to person. There are people who can be suicidal because of this circumstance. And there are people who will not be suicidal. Now, how do you make that assessment? Obviously, it's not just no rabbi or whatever it is. It's a, a doctor, a psychologist, therapist. They have to assess the situation. And of course, uh, give the person the benefit of the doubt. Meaning, if we're not sure if this is suicidal or not, we have to err on the side that it might be suicidal. Right? So we recognize, Allah recognizes that mental trauma can be as life-threatening as physical illness, and Allah permits that determination uh, to be made. Okay, so uh, you can call that a third one, or you can call that a subcategory of pikuach nefesh, which is the second one. Now, category th three, this is gonna be the third one for sure, are serious genetic illnesses in the pregnancy. Let's assume through amniocentesis or ultrasound or whatever test was used, we discover that the fetus has a serious genetic condition. Would that justify the termination of a pregnancy to spare both the family and the child all of the pain of that condition. In fact, uh, that's really one of the most common reasons for abortion in the secular world, some genetic abnormality. So the first thing you have to say right at the outset is genetic abnormality is a huge, huge, huge description of literally thousands of conditions. So let me take one extreme. Let's imagine that genetic testing reveals that the baby carries, when I say the baby, the unborn baby, carries the uh, Down syndrome. The baby will be born with Down syndrome. Can, does halacha permit the abortion of a fetus because it'll be born mentally impaired, mentally retarded, or Down syndrome or the like? Absolutely not. There is no question you cannot abort a baby with Down syndrome. If the family cannot take care of that baby, then put them up for adoption. 
There are plenty of Baruch Hashem. There are actually plenty of good homes that will adapt such a child. And the reason is very simple. A Down syndrome child, number one, can be high-functioning or low-functioning. There's a tremendous range of functioning. They can be relatively high-functioning. Uh, number two, they, they may have various health problems, but they can have a very significant life expectancy of living into their 50s or 60s, maybe even longer. Number three, maybe this is a stereotype, but it's fairly accurate. Their dispositions tend to be pleasant and they enjoy life. So what's the heter? What, what heter would a person have to terminate a pregnancy because of an impairment like Down syndrome? I mean, there's no, there's no reason. The person can have a good life, a joyous life, a life without that much pain. So that wouldn't be allowed. Or another example, let's say a child has a condition that's easily correctable by surgery, a cleft palate. Maybe not easily, but at least correctable by surgery. Cleft palate is a, is a defect, but you can fix it. But parents don't want uh, to go through it, whatever it would be. Now that's a genetic condition, but that would not be a hazard. Or another example, there are certain genetic conditions that are serious and are fatal, but they have a very long latency period, meaning to say they don't become manifest as a disease until many, many years later. An example is Huntington's disease. So again, it's a type of cancer, but that you can detect it genetically very, very early, even before birth, but it's not gonna be a problem till 40, 50, 60. That's, I think it's called um, Arlo Guthrie, Arlo, Woody, Woody Guthrie, Woody Guthrie was a famous folk singer and uh, he, he died of, of Huntington's. Uh, now, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna abort because the baby will get sick in 50 years? Well, first of all, a lot of things can happen in 50 years. Mashiach, Mirza Hashem, will be here well before then. If Chas Hashem Mashiach doesn't come, medical science advances. How are you gonna feel? If 20 years after the abortion, some doctor discovers the cure for Huntington's. <coughs> hmm, sorry about that. You know. So obviously, when there's a long latency period, there's no heter for abortion either. So I've mentioned two different situations. I've mentioned like three different types of genetic conditions where abortion would never be justified. One is something like Down syndrome, where there's a good quality of life and a long life expectancy. Uh, the second are things that are easily correctable or relatively correctable, like cleft palate. And a third are things in which even if the disease is not curable, but there's a long latency period and many years of life that could be good. So what type of condition would we be talking about the possibility of abortion? So the most outstanding blatant example is the disease known as Tay-Sachs disease. Uh, Tay-Sachs, like all these diseases, they're named after the doctors who discovered them and the like, Dr. Tay and Dr. Sachs, two, two Jewish doctors. Uh, Tay-Sachs disease is a disease, interestingly enough, that predominantly, not exclusively, but predominantly affects Ashkenazic Jews, not Sephardic, and there's not too much Tay-Sachs in the non-Jewish population, although it, it can happen. And uh, interestingly enough, in order for a child to get the illness, 
both parents must carry the Tay-Sachs gene. Uh, so if only one parent is a carrier, a child will not get the sickness. If both parents are carriers, there is a one in four chance that a child will have the sickness, one in four. So three out of four wouldn't, but uh, one in four. There is, in the Jewish community, an organization that's already been around for almost 50 years, Dor Yisharim, maybe you've seen the sign, maybe you've used the sign, used the uh, organization. Uh, Dor Yisharim has become a full service genetic testing, and there's some controversy about that, and I'll get to that. Uh, so now it tests for everything. Uh, but uh, in the olden days, when it started, it was focused on one condition, Tay-Sachs. And the way it would work is that, uh, and some people use this, some people don't. Again, we'll talk about that a little later. That is, if you're contemplating going out with a guy, so you might decide mutually, or your parents might decide, that they want you and the guy separately, you know, to go for a Tay-Sachs evaluation, and then if both of you are carriers, the organization will notify you not compatible. If only one of you is a carrier, they won't say, they'll just say compatible. They won't say who's a carrier, who's not a carrier. And there are shiduchim that actually insist on Dor Yisharim testing before a boy and a girl meet. Okay, we'll talk later about uh, is that something you should insist upon or not insist upon or have bitachon. But this is the Tesek. Now, let's assume, though, that either before there was Dor Yisharim or afterwards, and they didn't bother to test, and they discover after the woman is pregnant that the child in utero has Tay-Sachs. Now, Tay-Sachs is a genetic condition, just like Down syndrome is a genetic condition, but they are as different as night and day. Tay-Sachs is an extremely painful, debilitating childhood illness where the person suffers tremendously with loss of function, loss of motor control, loss of walking, eventually paralysis of, of muscles and inability to breathe on their own. And the mortality rate is 100% by age, I don't know the exact age, but before the age of 10, usually. So you're dealing with tremendous suffering, tremendous misery. Right? Don't confuse it with something like Down syndrome, which isn't that situation at all. So would a couple, again, uh, everything today is uh, on the sad side, would a couple be permitted to abort a pregnancy to spare their child the suffering of this type of genetic condition. So here, in point of fact, we have a huge, huge machlokis about this. There was a rabbi in Jerusalem who just died a few years ago, in his 90s, Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg. And Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg was a great, great posek in all areas, especially in medical halacha. In fact, he was the rav of Shari Tzedek Hospital for many, many years. Um, he lived um, He lived near Machna Yehuda, that's where he lived. Uh, and he wrote uh, like 20 volumes of different responsa called Sitz Eliezer, very famous responsa. And he actually ruled 
that because of the pain and suffering of the child, he permitted abortion of Tay-Sachs, Tay-Sachs abortions until the last trimester, until uh, the, uh, when the child is already viable, potentially. So he permitted a Tay-Sachs abortion until the end of six months. Which what? What's his name? Uh, Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg. We pronounce it Waldenberg. Uh, as he say, he was a rabbi in Yerushalayim. He was uh, also on the uh, the highest court of the rabbinut. They called the Beis Mishpat, Beis Din Yon, like the rabbinic supreme court. Until and, the six months? Huh? Until the six months. Until the end of the six oh. months, meaning until the last three months. This was Rav Waldenberg's position. Now again, please do not confuse this with other genetic conditions. Tay-Sachs is kind of in a category by itself. But then we have one who is acknowledged as perhaps the greatest of the poskim of the latter 20th century, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who took a very, very strong position against this. He even said that God will have to forgive Rav Waldenberg for permitting abortions under these circumstances. He treated it as murder and he said under no circumstances would a Tay-Sachs abortion be permitted at least after 40 days. Maybe before 40 days is another Shiloh, but certainly we would not permit a Tay-Sachs abortion even in the first trimester and certainly not in the second trimester. Because of this, Rabbi Feinstein was even against amniocentesis in the first place. Let's think about this. What is amniocentesis? Uh, it's simply a genetic test that when a woman is pregnant, they draw out amniotic fluid, and they can analyze the DNA, and they can determine if the uh, embryo or the fetus has genetic conditions. Uh, now, in the secular world, the purpose of amniocentesis is to make an abortion decision. In other words, oh, I see this problem, that problem, that problem, I decide to do an abortion. Or, or not, or not. But it's used in a decision about abortion. Rabbi Feinstein said, why should you do a test to uncover conditions that once you uncover them, there's nothing you can do about it. Meaning, why should a woman get a test to see if she's carrying a Down syndrome baby, or a cleft palate baby, or a Tay-Sachs baby, if no matter what comes up, she'll have to carry the baby anyway? And Ramosha argued, theologically, maybe it's better not to know. Why? Because if I don't know what's going on, Hashem might give me a bracha and cure things. In other words, there's a general idea here that Hashem normally does not do open supernatural miracles. We're not on that madrega. But Hashem will do hidden miracles that nobody knows about. That's why the Gemara says, when you harvest your crop, you shouldn't measure exactly how many bushels you have. Because if I measure my crop and I have exactly 100 bushels, Hashem is not going to give me 105. But if I don't know, maybe there'll be some extra stuff Hashem will give me. 
That's why in Israel, you should never look at your bank account. <laughs> if I know exactly that there's 10 shekel in my bank account, then all there's going to be is 10. There's not going to be 11. If I don't know exactly, so you know, maybe Hashem will put in another five or, or whatever, whatever it would be. Actually, somebody told me that they, I mean, they, they got credited a million shekel or something. But you know, everything has its cost. They got called in from the tax thing about they have to pay whatever. So they had to say, oh, it really wasn't my money and whatever. Okay, had to give it back. Um, uh, what do they say? This is why you don't look in your bank account, etc. Because uh, so, so what Moshe actually says, you see the point? Now, actually, let, let me elaborate that a little bit just, just to give you a sense. Today, medical science offers all sorts of tests for pregnant women. You can test this and that and that and that. I don't know if any of you are in this profession, ultrasound testing and all sorts of things. You can, you can actually know your gender, right? Every ultrasound, they always ask you, do you want to know the baby's uh, gender, right, et cetera. So the question is, is it good to test for things or not good to test for things? So here is the basic idea. If these are things that you can fix and you can correct, then you shouldn't turn a blind eye. Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu requires that we do medical intervention when necessary. So if, for example, they could determine a problem in the pregnancy that they could correct, they can actually do surgery on a baby in utero or whatever it is. Then Fakir, then it's the opposite. Then it's good for you to know because then you can do the hishtadlus that you need to do in order to correct it. You don't simply say, oh, I don't want to know about problems. Hashem will take care of it. No. Hashem only takes care of it if you've done your, your effort. But here is Rav Moshe's point. If you will uncover a problem in which there's nothing you can do about it, right, you uncover. So if the testing uncovers a heart valve defect, that can be fixed. But if the testing uncovers Down syndrome, that's not going to be fixed. Or even Tay-Sachs, it's not going to be fixed. So what Moshe's argument is, if uncovering a problem will not enable you to fix the problem, then theoretically, religiously speaking, it might be better not to even know about it. <coughs> Because then you could be so much that Hashem might do a miracle and cure an unknown condition, which you might not merit once you know about the existence. So Hashem may turn the Down syndrome into a non-Down syndrome, but only if you don't yet know that it's Down syndrome. Yeah. Does this specific test only expose some of the problems that can't be fixed? Like, is that insured? No, no, so it depends. That's what I'm saying. So, so, so when you're a, a pregnant woman or whatever it is, and there are different tests, that are being proposed, what you have to go through with the doctor is, if something negative comes out, what can we do about it? If the doctor says, there's nothing you can do about it except get an abortion uh, or live with the problem, Ramosha would actually say, I'd rather not test. Now, some argue with this for the following reason. Now, Ramosha seems to be saying that it's better for a person not to know that their child has Tay-Sachs or Down syndrome. But what if a parent makes the following argument? If I know ahead of time, I know I can't get an abortion. I'm not going to use this for abortion. But if I know ahead of time, 
I can psychologically prepare myself to be a better parent and a better caregiver and get information. I think that is a valid argument, meaning, meaning if it will help you be a better parent, that mistama would be a, a hedger to get this information. Okay, so, so I would therefore add a little bit. There are two reasons for testing. One is to uncover problems that are correctable. And the second, to be able to help you be a better parent in helping your child with the disability. But other than that, there is a certain advantage in not knowing about bad news. Right? No news is good news, and that, that can apply here, uh, too, uh, in, that, in that sense. And that's why Rav Moshe was against uh, a lot of the anti-Yosentesis. By the way, let me just say a few words about Dory Sharon for a moment. Dory Sharon itself, some people are, are critical of, and again, I'm not, I'm not here to criticize, uh, but I'm just telling you the, the issue. That is, Dory Sharon, back in the 1970s, was started to, in those days, genetic testing was at its infancy. It really wasn't even widely done. It was designed to deal with a specific fatal condition in which children suffer tremendously Tay-Sachs. Now, Doria Sharam tests for, I don't know, maybe a thousand conditions, a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, whether there's a chance of hearing loss, <laughs> whether there's uh, obesity gene, you know, a million, a million different things. Which means now people are testing for conditions that are not so bad, but they want perfect. They want the perfect shidduch. I want a designer child. I want a, a designer husband. Uh, therefore, I want a designer child. Uh, I mean, I want the blue eyes and I want the blonde hair, whatever it would be. Uh, I want the person to be thin and brilliant, whatever. They, they do all those, all those tests. So many people have said that you don't use genetic testing for that way because you have to have a moon in Hashem. In other words, it's one thing, HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us permission to look for illnesses and to try to heal illnesses. That's the permission he gave us to go to the doctor. HaKadosh Baruch Hu said we take care of our health we look for <coughs> illnesses that we can cure, but you don't stop and do tests because you want to have the perfect situation. Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu decides what's good for you. So many people are critical over Darya Sharim vastly expanding from fatal childhood illnesses to things that are more of a matter of preference and, uh, and the like. Now, back in the 1970s, they actually got a letter from Rav Moshe Feinstein approving their program, and they still use the letter as support for their program, but the truth of the matter is, you know, I, I can't tell you, but I'm not sure that Rav Moshe Feinstein would approve uh, every last thing that the program does today. I mean, literally, uh, Tay-Sachs is like a thousand, like, uh, not Tay-Sachs, Doria Sharim must test for a thousand things. I mean, somebody sent me a Doria Sharim report. I mean, I, I couldn't even read it. It was like 20 pages of small print of this condition, that condition, that condition, that condition. I was supposed to look for a ta I couldn't even find where Tay-Sachs was. Tay-Sachs was buried <laughs> in, in obesity and baldness and whatever. It's a million, a million different, uh, a million different things. Okay. Alrighty, so that's uh, something you need to know about. So that's a very big machlokas, the genetic abnormality. Now, the final exception I want to raise is actually a very, very interesting exception. That is, uh, in medical uh, terminology, uh, 
when the sperm fertilizes the egg, it's initially called a blastocyst, and then eventually it becomes embryo, and eventually becomes fetus. There are probably other words in between. But there actually is something called a pre-embryo. Now, what's the difference between an embryo and a pre-embryo? A pre-embryo is uh, an egg that was fertilized outside of the womb of the woman and has not yet been implanted in her body. So it's called a pre-embryo. The classic example is simply IVF, in vitro fertilization, right? In vitro fertilization is uh, a procedure and again, we'll talk more about this. I'm just bringing it in uh, introductory at this point, where the husband's sperm fertilizes his wife's egg in a Petri dish. So the embryo is created in a laboratory dish, and then it is transplanted into the woman's body. There are various reasons why people use IVF in vitro fertilization. In vitro fertilization, it was at one point very experimental. It started, I think, in the 1980s, maybe 1980. Louise Brown, who is now a, a British woman, who's now a grandmother, uh, she was the first IVF baby born in 1980. Now, uh, IVF is a very, very successful procedure. It's used by non-religious, well, it's used by Goyim, by Jews, by religious Jews. Religious Jews do use uh, IVF as well. And, you know, its, it's success rate depends on the clinic, depends on the doctor, depends, of course, on the Kodesh Baruch Hu. Uh, but success rates can be 30%, 40%, 50%, depending on the clinic. So it's not like 100% you'll have a child, but it's, a, it's an avenue that people do. Now, interestingly enough, Israel is very supportive of IVF, meaning in the United States, IVF is expensive. IVF is an expensive procedure. Uh, insurance companies in the States typically pay for only two attempts. I think, it depends on the policy, but historically, you can do it twice. If it doesn't work after two times, you're on your own, you gotta come up with the money, which can be very expensive. I believe that uh, Israel generally allows unlimited, you know, the medical insurance will pay for unlimited IVF attempts subject to an age limitation. So they're not gonna, if you're over 40, they will maybe pay for one IVF or something, but after that, they're not going to bother because pregnancies are, are not likely. But until you reach, and again, I don't know the exact numbers, but until you reach a certain age, they will pay for unlimited attempts because Eretz Yisrael, Baruch Hashem, even the secular government, is actually a child-friendly society. That's one of the pluses, many pluses, of living in Israel, and that is they do support the production of children uh, in that way. Uh, so, here is the thing. Uh, until the embryo is implanted in the, in the woman's womb, it is what we call a pre-embryo. It's a made-up term, but, but that's the term that's used today. So, many opinions say that even if you're machmer on abortion and you don't allow abortion even within 40 days of conception, that's only after implantation in the womb. But when it's a pre-implantation stage, and it is called a pre-embryo, some, some, some shitos are gonna permit destroying a pre-embryo, and the reason they argue is 
that the laws of abortion only apply when the fetus or the embryo is in the environment where it could come to fruition and get born. And since the Petri dish, it cannot really, you know, you're not gonna have a Petri dish for nine months. In fact, what would happen with an IVF embryo is it would die unless it's implanted you know, in two weeks or so. Now, this raises a very interesting possibility. Uh, this allows for something that is called pre-implantation genetic screening. That is the final. Let's go back to our take-sex example for a moment. Let's imagine you have a couple and the couple did not use, do Dory Sharon. But they discover after they are married that they are both carriers of Tay-Sex gene. So there's a one in four chance that they will have a baby with Tay-Sex. Let me list very quickly the choices that they have. Choice one, well, if there's a one in four chance we'll have a kid with Tay-Sex, maybe we should just get divorced. I'm just lifting up. So option one is divorce. But that's not so great. There may be a little minor problem, like they love each other. Right? So to stop and tell people to get divorced, that's not going to be good. Option two, let's go on permanent contraception and not have children. Well, that's a problem too. There's a mitzvah in the Torah to be fruitful and multiply. So to simply make a decision we're not going to have children is a big problem. Option three, let's go for pregnancies. And since there's only one in four that'll have Tay-Sex, let's do, let's do amniocentesis during the pregnancy. And if it's a Tay-Sex, we'll abort. And if not, we'll, we won't. In other words, selective abortion. Well. Rev. Waldenberg might say that's okay. But according to Rev. Moshe Feinstein, Tay-Sachs abortion is not permitted. So I mentioned three choices, none of which are good. Divorce, no good. Childless marriage, no good. Selective abortion, no good. But now we have a fourth choice that comes in. They should attempt all pregnancies through an in vitro fertilization procedure, meaning they would have a, a diaphragm or something so she would not get pregnant through intercourse. Again, I'll talk about that. But the pregnancies would be in vitro. And then they can examine the embryos under a microscope for the genetic defect of Tay-Sachs. And then they would be allowed not to implant a Tay-Sachs embryo because the laws against abortion don't apply to a pre-embryo. This is called pre-implantation genetic screening, or PGS. So this might be a good option. Now, so I mentioned four options. Three are no good, one would work. Right, option one is divorce. Option two is child, childless marriage. Option three, selective abortion. Those are no good. Option four, pre-implantation genetic screening. Now let me mention option five. 
option five, I will call the option of the tzaddik and the pious one. And that is, I will take what Hashem gives me and I will not question it. If Hashem gives me healthy children, I will accept the bracha. And if Hashem gives me disabled children, I will accept that as a bracha as well. Meaning, meaning there is an option in which a person might say, I will take what God gives me. I don't have to circumvent it in any way. That probably is the highest madrega. But Judaism does recognize that not everybody can always live <coughs> on that highest madrega. This could break a person. So halacha does allow what you might call a loophole or whatever it is, but it does allow. So I'm not advocating, I'm not saying they should do pre-implementation genetic screening. I'm just saying they could do it. It's permitted, but there's also a cheshman that one should say, whatever God gives me, I will say gamzula tova no matter what. Yeah. Um, the only question with that is that it seems like taste sexism affects the child more than the parents. Is that really like... No, you're, you're, you're correct. So the question is, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. I'm a righteous person. I'm a maimon in Hashem. Do I have the right to be a maimon in a way that's going to hurt somebody else? It's one thing for me to take on pain. So that's a very, that, that is a very, very hard question. That's part of the shiko. But the short answer is that in a way we don't understand the neshama coming into this world, even with a difficult life of suffering, will be masakein itself in a way that it will have a much, much greater olam haba. Uh, in fact, in many, many ways, the suffering that a person has in this world will give them a much greater closeness to Hashem afterwards. So, it's a very painful thing that I'm going to put my child through this pain and suffering, but in a deep way, from the perspective of the tzaddik, this is actually for the benefit of the child as well. Okay. So are they able to, yeah. if, in like, in like, if it was grown in a Petri dish, dish, are they allowed to like, it's not called yeah. abortion? That's what I'm saying, according to some opinions, until... Some opinions that you can't? Some, some opinions are strict, actually. They will treat it like abortion. Of course, it's less than 40 days, so, but, but, but still abortion. But some opinions say that this does not apply to unimplanted embryos. This would also be relevant, I'll talk more about this next week, to stem cell research. Uh, stem cell research is very important, and they retrieve embryonic stem cells from destroying IVF embryos. And they get stem cells. We'll talk about this more. Uh, if there is a heter, for stem cell research, it would be predicated on this idea that the unimplanted embryo is not yet subject to abortion laws. Okay? Okay, you'll have a good week. Good Thank you. Thank you. Do you have time for a question? Um, so I've heard that in some cases, like regarding the lifeboat scenario, where, you know, there's everyone's life is in um, I've 